the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 359 for Monday, October 17th, 2011. Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in some questions, you send in your tips, we provide some answers, and together, we all, you, us, I guess that's it, just you and us, uh, we learn something new about the Mac and uh, and Apple stuff here in Durham, New Hampshire. I am Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun, and then back up it's to you. Pilot, Pilot Pete, who's that guy? Haven't heard of him in a long time. Welcome back, Pete. Thanks. It's nice to it's have you to be here. here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. You know what, John, with, uh, with the way that pre-show, uh, we, we tend to, when there's problems with pre-show folks, we tend to, uh, to keep that from you, but, uh, and we're going to do our best to keep that from you today, but pre-show was, uh, drawn out simply because there were a lot of technical issues on this end, uh, like not having any audio, which when you're doing a podcast, it's really kind of a bad thing, John. So uh, with that in mind, let's just dive right in and, and see if we can get into the groove of this thing and, uh, and go from there. Terrence writes, uh, inspired by the podcast, I decided to have a look at Automator and AppleScript. I'm working my way through a book on the subject, but have hit a problem right at the start. I decided to use Automator's record function to try a simple workflow. This involves opening iTunes from a doc folder alias, clicking on podcasts and clicking on refresh. The first time I ran this, it asks me, asked me to go into system preferences, into universal access, and check the enable access for assistive devices box, which I did, and it worked fine. After a shutdown and reboot the following day, I got the same error message with the requested preference uh, enabled. I've tried a couple of things to fix this, but with no luck. I checked and verified and repaired permissions. I generally cleaned out caches using Onyx, and then I hit a wall. Uh, I was wondering if the problem uh, was related to a corrupted plist file, and if it does, can you help with locating the file I need to trash? So, Terry, uh, this is one of my favorite types of questions because, as uh, as longtime Mac Geek Gab listeners know, it involves a tip that we're actually going to write up and put on the site. In fact, I took a whole bunch of screenshots in answering Terrence's question to share with all of you as an MGG Answers article that will be coming up real soon now. Uh, what this, uh, yes, you can find this preference. And, and the way I like to find it is by using a custom search in the finder. Uh, I will go through it br- very briefly here. We've been through it before, uh, and it's much better seen on screen. But in a general sense, what you do is you go into the finder, you go to file and choose find, and you build a search that allows you to see all of the files that have been recently modified today. And you sort by modified date. And then what you do is you go in to uh, the system preference pane of, of your choice. You make the settings change. And in theory, you will see whatever P list file it is. That's that's modified floats to the top of that list because you're looking at all files and, uh, and and sorting them by modified time or at least all files from today. And that's usually what I set up is I tell it to find everything, including system files and then anything modified today, because I don't need it to go any further than that. And um, and it and it works great. And you can even save it as a uh, as a persistent search. 
again, I'm not going to go through the steps right here because it's uh, we a we've been through them before pretty recently and B it'll be better uh, in an article, but doing that and checking the box that Terry mentioned here, I did find that the file is uh, I'm trying to think of what the file's name is. Uh, it is home library preferences, com.apple.universalaccess.plist. So a fairly, uh, fairly transparent thing to find there, but, uh, but not, you know, not overly hidden, but nonetheless, that is the file. Once you find, if you're in a situation like this, Terry, once you find that file, what I would do is quit all your apps, uh, delete that file or, put, or trash that file and immediately reboot your Mac. Come back up. It should recreate that file. Then you can empty the trash and uh, and hopefully it was just, you know, some corruption in the P list and, and hopefully you should be good to go and on your way. You got any other thoughts on that one, John? Yes. Good. Oh, go. You, you want them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We all want them. Um, well, there's another one here is uh, on occasion. What you may want to do. So our pal Onyx. Right. Has a setting where if you go into Onyx under verify, there's any tab called preferences and you can check your preferences and it will explicitly identify what appear to be corrupt preferences. So that may be another thing you may want to do on oh, occasion. That's a good. Have you ever had it find one that's. Oh, yes. Of, yes. Really? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, I think what happens sometimes is, you know, maybe if your machine crashes and it's either reading it or writing it at the wrong time, you may get invalid characters. And, and this feature, yeah, I have had it come up and say, you know, this, this prep file for whatever reason is, is screwed up. So you should probably get rid of it. So uh, backup or, or just an ongoing maintenance thing using our pal Onyx. Yeah, that's to, a good to idea. Make sure your, your P list files are, are in good order because they can get screwed up. And I think that's what happened here. Yeah, I, I bet you're right. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Very cool. You know, and that's that's the thing about Onyx and really even just the Mac OS in general is there's there's always all sorts of little nooks and crannies that uh, that even even us geeks overlook. And that's why John and I uh, that's why we like doing this together, because we we find things and think of things that the other one wouldn't. I like that, John. That's good. All right. Moving on to Michael, John. Sure. Michael writes, I recently purchased a 32 gig USB thumb drive for my i7 iMac. My intention was to install my Parallel 7 Windows 7 machine on it so I could move it between my iMac and my MacBook. I was able to open it, but I was incredibly sluggish, uh, or it was incredibly sluggish. I thought that a USB drive would be as fast, if not faster, than a traditional hard drive. It's USB 2 device with good reviews. Should this work better than it is? Uh... John, go ahead. Why don't you? Uh, My answer is no. I agree with your answer. And the thing is, it, so yes, so it is a flash drive or a thumb drive, but I would put thumb drives or, or the, and we'll call it a thumb drive. I would put them on the lower end of the performance spectrum when you're talking about how fast they operate. And and I I dug into this. So the thing an is, SSD even, they are not. I mean, they are technically. No, they're not. Well, well, they they are flash memory, right? Solid that, so, state so we got, device, right. right? So we have two types of memory. Basically, you have the one type of memory that's that's in all of our computers, and that's the memory that is only persistent when when it has power. Then you have your flash memory on things like thumb drives and SSDs, which is if they don't have power then everything they can still retain their contents. And the thing is, by their nature, they are typically, though they're different classes, as I'm going to point out here, 
And when you're talking thumb drives, so the thing is USB 2 in theory is 480 megabits per second or about 60 megabytes per second. So in this case, USB is not the bottleneck here. What the bottleneck is, is the type of memory in these thumb drives. And, and part of the hint should be that, you know, I mean, these are relatively low cost. I mean, most of these thumb drives, I think, are under 100 bucks. Right. right? Now, they're smaller capacity, but they're, they're also inexpensive. So you're talking a different class of memory. And when I looked around, the best performance that I could find on these types of drives is uh, right performance of, you know, you're lucky to get 10 megabytes per second and read performance, maybe 20 megabytes per second. So both of those are certainly below the 60 megabytes per second. And, yeah. and SSDs are like an order of magnitude beyond that. Uh, SSDs well, yeah. or mechanic or spindle drives, as you and I, uh, and, and you sent me a note too, Dave, um, just uh, outside of this, where you, you could see either spindle drives or SSDs approach hundreds of megabytes per second throughput. Yeah. So in my, um, first of all, in terms of Michael's question, before we dive into this tangent too deep, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. USB so what, what he's doing. So, so the benefit that you're getting here is that yes, it's portable and it's handy and it's convenient, but it's especially the right performance is, is severely lacking in these drives here. So my suggestion to him was, you know, if you do want to put um, a virtual machine on this, uh, I looked at this and and just because I like these guys and I've gotten drives from them, you can get a uh, OWC I found had a 120 gigabyte drive with USB 2 on it uh, for about 60 bucks. And uh, and that's going to give you, even if it's a 5400 RPM drive, you're going to get performance that's way beyond the 10 to 20 megabytes per second that you're going to see on these thumb drives. So uh, I think thumb drives are ideal for quickly moving a single file between machines and i think that's what most people use them for but to support a virtual machine i i think is not the best use for them so that that's that's what i gotta say there so so what he's seeing is is expected right yeah it it um it was interesting earlier today i was copying something from my the it's a seagate uh 7200 rpm drive that's the spindle drive inside my my imac which of course has the spindle and the ssd and and when I copy stuff between those two drives, I think see things moving, you know, over a hundred megabytes a second. It's really, it's, it cooks. Uh, today I was copying, I was actually uh, blasting a disc image from, from, from the uh, spindle drive from the Seagate drive in my iMac off to a Toshiba drive in, um, in an other world computing or Mac sales uh, on the go Mercury on the go enclosure. And it was connected via FireWire 800. And I it's one of these enclosures that has 800 and USB 2 and, you know, all these other things. And and I figured, well, I'll, I'll grab the FireWire 800 cable because that's going to be faster. And using iStat menus, which is a great way to measure disk speed, I watched it and it topped out at 30 megabytes a second. I mean, it would not go a lick faster than that. And I'm not sure that that's the if it's, that's the drive or perhaps if it's the... My guess is it's the drive, but it, it could also be the, you know, whatever circuit circuitry they use in the enclosure, uh, you know, and this was this one's a couple of years old. So I, I don't know which it is, but uh, but it was interesting to see that drive, uh, you know, top out at, at 30 megs a second, even on a uh, fire rate on 800 bus. But but that's how it goes. I mean, so, you know, slower drives are slower. That's what that's kind of my definition. Right, John. All right. Um Let's dive into Randy's question here. 
Um, you know, iOS five and, and iCloud and all of that was released last week, including the iPhone 4S. Um, in, in fact, uh, so you did not get a 4S as we discussed in the last show. You did not order one. Um, but but I did, John. And on this. So. I don't know. Uh, I haven't had it long enough. Right. Today's Monday. I got it Friday. Uh, battery life on this thing seems markedly worse than battery life was on my iPhone four. Yes. Well, that's what I heard. Actually, if okay. you look at the specs, say, I believe the stand. Yes. <laughs> well, no, yes, because, uh, well, no, I was, uh, and I, I think we're going to link to it, but no, I was on yeah. a, uh, yesterday, which I guess you didn't join us, but a Mac round table where we did the whole iPhone iOS five thing. And, and from what I recall, the specs on the forest itself state that the standby time is less than the okay. iPhone four, slightly less. So I'm not surprised that you're seeing. Yeah, I'm not seeing um, slightly less. I, I think to me, it feels like half. What's the, Plus, uh, it's got a dual core now, A5, right? Which, if anything, it should be drawing more juice. Assuming the battery is the same one as in the four, I would think that in and of itself would cause you yeah. to have less battery life because the processor, I would think, with two cores yeah. is probably going to draw a little more power. It would stand to reason. That's right. Although, it, you know, it is a different chip, so it's possible it's drawing less. But but yeah, it's um, and it's hard to tell because, I've you know, I've only had it for a couple of days. And and of course, I've been testing it and using it more than I typically would. So it, it's hard to say. But even bearing that in mind. Uh, you know, I haven't been using my phone a whole lot today. I don't think I've had any conversations on it. Um, and if I have, they've been very short. Uh, and I'm down, you know, at 40% battery life, whereas normally wow. by this point during the day, and again, I haven't been doing much on it. I've been on my computers and and not messing with the phone a whole lot. Normally I'd be at, you know, 60 or 70. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, it, you know, and it could also be, you know, having restored from the backup of my iPhone 4, you never know if there's something lingering out there that's, negatively impacting battery life or, 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 you know, or what, but, um, but it is, it is interesting. The Siri thing is, uh, actually works a whole lot better than I expected. Uh, what's what I've found very cool. Uh, so there's a couple of things I've found cool and we're not going to go through everything, but, but with Siri telling it to do things for me, like last night we were cooking dinner and, uh, and, you know, uh, Lisa had pulled chicken out of the oven and I said, oh, is it time to carve it? She said, no, we should let it rest a little bit. I said, fine. So I grabbed the phone and I uh, said to Siri. Set my uh, timer for five minutes and I put the phone down and it said, OK, no problem. I'll set your timer for five minutes. And five minutes later, my timer went off. So that kind of thing is really cool. It saved me a ton of time. I mean, not a ton, but but relatively speaking, quite a bit. I didn't have to dig through. I didn't have to find the clock app. I didn't, you know, I didn't even have to unlock the phone. I just did this and put it back down and it was good to go. So, you know, so that sort of thing is is very handy. One little geeky thing, uh, and this definitely falls into cool stuff found, but we'll talk about it now, is the fact that you can now do custom uh, vibration tones. And this is for anyone with iOS five, mm -hmm. not just with, uh, not just with, with, you know, the four S you can do this with the iPhone four. And I even think the three GS will do this. So if you go in first, you have to go into settings. Uh, have you done this, John? I've heard of it, but okay. Go. So settings, general, uh, accessibility, and then down in the hearing section, you have to turn on custom vibrations. Once you've done this, uh, you can then go into either into a contact record or into uh, settings sounds. And at the bottom, 
you have vibration patterns and uh, and you can go in there and pick they, there's uh, I think five vibration patterns that are built into the phone. Oh, that's brilliant. Yep. And then custom vibration vibration patterns. And so I tapped out, uh, you know, L.I.S.A. in Morse code. And so now when Lisa calls me, I know that it's her because I can feel the phone vibrate in uh, in my pocket. And the way that you do it, you just say create new vibration in it and you literally tap it out on the screen, you know, and uh, and it just it works. It's awesome. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, it so you can be at a meeting and have your phone, no yep. caller ID without pulling it out of your pocket. Yep. It's caller ID without pulling it out of your pocket. So again, it clearly built as a, as an accessibility thing, but totally useful for, uh, for anyone, I think. And, and just a cool thing to be able to do. I mean, you know, why not be able to do this? So that's my cool thing. You've updated to iOS five. Yes, John. Oh boy. That was fun. <laughs> Did you have trouble with it? Now, nah, a lot of people did. Mm. The, the Apple servers got slammed and, yeah. and most people we see is, you know, did it back up, then, it, well, did the download, then it would do a backup, then we try to do restore. And most people ran into this obscure uh, internal error. That's yep. what I kept getting. Yeah. And if you dug into the, uh, to the log file, uh, if you looked in the console, you would actually say, I think it's a iPhone update.log. It would say uh, error 3200. It's like, oh, well, that, that's really useful. Apparently, through the grapevine, I found out that that meant basically the Apple servers, because I, I guess what it does, even if it's not a device that's a cell device, apparently it phones home to say, hey, by the way, you know, the, this device with this phone number, is this OK to, to, you know, put some new software on this? No, that that's act, well, that's what it does. But but like you said, it's not it doesn't happen with with just phones. It happens with iPod touches, too. And and what it does is it makes sure that you are installing a version of the firmware that apple considers current oh and it's, right. so you don't wind up rolling backwards um now this has caused trouble for people that have jailbroken their phones and want to remain on older firmwares and that's why people have to set up uh you know using softwares like a, like a tiny umbrella will allow you to essentially create a dummy uh, authentication server from Apple, right? It, so it, it steps in the way and acts like Apple and says, oh yeah, 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 this person's totally okay to uh, to run uh, you know, right. this firmware. So that's what it is. And it's so that people, so that Apple can ensure that m- at least most people are running current uh, firmware and that's good for developers. That's good for, oh, okay. which makes it good for all of us in a, in a, in a general sense. So that's, that's what that issue is. Yeah. But if those servers are overloaded, like you found, Ain't going nowhere. And it doesn't, you know, and it gives the, I mean, they might as well not even say this. I mean, so shame on them for saying, you know, because an internal error occurred. What, what, what do you mean by that? You know, what are you driving at? As opposed to an external error, which actually it was. It was an external error. <laughs> That's right. When you think about it, yeah. it wasn't internal to the phone. It no. wasn't like something got corrupted in the phone. It was just, um, but no, once I got past that and, uh, and got the new OS. Uh, I'm happy with it. I'm not going to run over all the features. If anything, I would say my favorite feature is iMessage. iMessage is cool. It 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 makes me it actually it makes me feel far better than I expected it would to really stick it to those cell carriers that have been horking us. And I use horking in a very emphatic sense. Uh, and in that we want to nice keep way. this, in that we want to keep this podcast clean. Well, uh, but, but you but know, they, it is, it is capitalism, Dave. It, they are providing a service and charging, uh, an exorbitant the, rate for yeah, it. And the market's bearing it. That's well, that's sad. versus that's versus right. like in my case, I think I I'm, so I'm on a per, uh, 
message plan. I didn't buy a plan. Sure. But I think right now I pay whether I send or receive. I believe I pay, you know, which in the grand scheme of things is not a lot, but I pay 20 cents. But when you compare the amount of resources that they expend versus, you know, 20th of a cent. (laughs) Yeah. So they may be spending, you know, with their infrastructure. I mean, yes. So they have to, you know, invest in infrastructure and bandwidth and all that. Compare that to the data cost of sending that same message, even if you had a $15 a month, 200 megabyte cap plan. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's still, you know, thousands of percent markup compared to that. And, uh, and I hope, I hope that, that this is the beginning of, uh, of the end. And I hope, frankly, I hope those people that, that had uh, decided to engineer these, these totally, you know, screw us rates for SMS messages, I hope that they saw iMessage and decided, you know what, it's just not worth it anymore. And they went out and dug a hole in the woods and crawled in and we'll never hear from them again. (laughs) I I hope they've just given up. But I love the implementation. You go to message, you pick somebody, and if they're capable, then the text input field will say iMessage instead of text message. And, And what's cool is... If I put in a phone number and or even if I go back to a message that pre iOS five, I had been, a you know, SMSing with someone like with you, John, as soon as we were both on iOS five, it magically changed. So it's on the fly automatically without anyone having to do anything. If both people are iMessage capable, boom, you're you're sending an iMessage, whether it's, you know, should have been SMS before or not. Yeah, it's awesome. That's great. That is yeah. great. I mean, and for what it's worth, you know, AT&T did change their, you're getting another benefit on their unlimited plan. You're getting unlimited mobile to mobile, regardless of who is on. That, you that's know, true. That's their one thing. But yeah, you that know, guy that's, can sleep that's a at small night. bone they've thrown back to us. Yeah. But yeah. And now, yeah. now, especially, um, and this was brought to light uh, when I was talking to some of the people last night on, on the round table, because they're not all in the U.S., like, you know, we had yeah, Don yeah. who's in That's the huge. UK and we had Bart. I forget if Bart is in, uh, he's, in Ireland. I, I, he's yeah. in Ireland. Bart Bouchats, yeah. And so now, as long as you have, I think you need, uh, you have to register with, the, you have to have at least an Apple ID registered. Correct. Or their phone number. I believe that those are the two criteria. But then, yeah. So the thing is now to message with people that are in other countries, rather than breaking the bank, which my understanding is, a, you know, international SMS, you're, you're everybody gets <laughs> they're emptying your pockets even more than if you're doing it domestically. So, uh, so being able to, to chat, um, yeah. with, with people anywhere in the world, uh, is it, so yeah, so maybe it'll normalize the, uh, the texting space now that they'll, they'll make their plans a little more reasonable. We'll, and we'll see. And of course, what's cool is anyone with an iOS device, again, even if it's not a phone, you can text with them. Oh like, yeah. Like the first yeah. one I sent you, you said you got it on your iPad on and your iPad. That's right. Yeah. Came into both places. Yeah. My, and my kids can text now with their, uh, with their iPod touches and, you know, again, you got to have a data connection. So, you know, they've got to be on Wi-Fi. but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty good. All right. All right. So now moving on to Randy, Randy writes, my wife's iPhone, uh, pre OS five. I had her set up, uh, for the iTunes app store with my Apple care, with my Apple login. Uh, and that way we didn't have to pay for an app twice to put it on both of our phones. Uh, on my wife's iPhone post iOS five, I've set her up with iCloud and automatically the iTunes app store defaults to using that login for app purchases. So now I can't download apps from my login without having to pay for them again. 
How does this work now? Can I somehow share apps between our phones, even though my phone's uh, Apple ID is my old one and her phone's Apple ID is her new iCloud ID? So in a short uh, answer, Randy, yes, you can do what you want. So for iCloud, uh, the recommendation is that you use separate IDs and you don't have to. But if you use the same ID on two devices, uh, all the contacts and all the calendars will be shared as well. And that may not be what you want. Uh, assuming you want to have separate uh, calendars and contacts, then yes, you need two separate iCloud IDs, but you do not have to live with that same ID being your Apple uh, store, your app store ID. Uh, you can change this a couple of different ways. You can do it in the app store. I always click on the categories at the bottom and then scroll to the end. And you can see there's a little button where you can sign out. But uh, and then you, once you've signed out of the app store, you can sign back in and it doesn't change anything else. It's just that. Uh, but the other thing you can do is you can go into settings and uh, scroll down a little bit to store. And there at the bottom of that list, you will also see the Apple ID uh, to wit with which you are logged into the store. Tap that. You can choose. Uh, well, it's actually kind of funny. You have three options. You have view Apple ID. You have sign out. And then you have I forgot. And I don't know what I forgot does. You know, I'm going to tap it here because that's how uh, that's how we roll. Oh, you can uh, you can actually have it help you figure out your uh, password or your Apple ID. So uh, so there you go. Um, but that that's how you would do it. And then you change it there and you leave your iCloud login alone, which is going to be under settings, mail, calendars, contacts. And and that way your phone is now logged into two IDs. If. And we'll go off on a little tangent here. Uh, if you wanted, if you had a mobile me account and an iCloud account, you could actually be logged into both of those uh, by going into settings, mail, contacts, calendars, and just adding mobile me and iCloud there. And in fact, that's how I'm set up now. I don't want to, and I'm not ready to migrate my main mobile me account over to iCloud, but uh, I wanted to test some iCloud features. So I set up uh, a separate Apple ID for iCloud. And uh, and it, you know, it's working great. I actually really like the photo stream thing, being able to take a picture with my iPhone and have it appear on my iPad and also on my Mac. Uh, so that, you know, that part's pretty cool. Um, I, I guess now is a good time to talk about getting it on the Mac because the, on the Mac, it's not as forgiving, John. Uh, you cannot have uh, uh, you can't be logged into both iCloud and mobile me simultaneously. If you're logged into mobile me and you click the iCloud preference pane, you uh, it tells you you have to migrate your mobile me account. And then if you log out of mobile me and log into iCloud, then you go back to mobile me. It won't let you log in without logging out of iCloud. So I found a way around it, though, because I wanted to do this. And I actually stumbled hmm. onto it because what happened was I updated my MacBook Air, which was logged into mobile me. And then it came up with the iCloud thing. But instead of saying you have to migrate it to put in your iCloud login. So I put mine in and suddenly I was logged into both. And so I used the little trick that we talked about at the beginning of the show to uh, find out the name of the preference pane or the uh, prep file. This is where it got really weird. And this is where, you know, my faith in iCloud started to, uh, to diminish a little bit uh, because that preference file is called uh, it is home. Now. So here's the, here's the path. You have to log out of in order to get logged into both. You have to log out of mobile me. You have to log into iCloud with a separate account. So you're still going to even when you're done, you're going to be logged in as two separate accounts. You can't have the same account in both. But you log into iCloud 
And then you go into uh, home library preferences and um, I'm trying to find the name of the file here. So bear with me. Uh, I believe let's see. Yeah. So then you're going to have a, so you're going to be logged into iCloud and then in home library preferences, there is a file called mobile me accounts dot P list. Do not let the name confuse you. This has nothing to do with what Apple calls mobile me. It has to do with what Apple calls iCloud. And once you've logged out of iCloud, that file will be there, but it is empty uh, for all intents and purposes. Uh, So you have to be logged into iCloud, go make a copy of that file and then log out of iCloud, log back into mobile me and quit system preferences and then go put that file, the copy that you made back into preferences. And now you'll be logged into both. Uh, I make no promises that this is going to work for everyone because it's obviously a clear and total hack. But for people Mm -hmm. like me who want to play with iCloud, want to do the photo stream thing, but I've still got some Snow Leopard machines here. I can't run uh, iCloud on those yet. I still want to sync my contacts and my calendars, and I still want to sync Yojimbo amongst all my Macs, and that isn't possible with iCloud. Uh, Then that's what you do. So there's that. And maybe we'll do a MGG Answers article on that, too, because that's an interesting thing. So anyway, that's that's a little tangent for you, John. We got into the groove of the show. Right. Right? Yeah. Anything, John thoughts? I'm, I just migrated. So I'm still kind of crocking the whole iCloud thing. Migration. You said went okay for you. Uh, except for, uh, well, except for one thing, which was a, uh, and this has me, uh, kind of confused, but well, we talked about it, but I'll mention it to people. Uh, uh, so yeah, I lost one of my calendars, which is the calendar that you and I use to uh, schedule our shows. Because I'm still on mobile me. me. And this, I got to say, just bothers me because in theory, it's a CalDAV calendar, which again, in theory, CalDAV is a standard, so it shouldn't matter. But I think what happened is so now that the, the, my Apple ID is now unknown to mobile me. That's right. And that's what you published it to is you said, oh, share it with John's Apple ID. But now that I don't exist in MobileMe anymore, I can't get to it. I thought I could type in the URL once I migrated my calendars over and all the ones except the shared calendar came over just fine. Uh, I thought I could just subscribe to it, you know, because you get a URL. It's a HTTPS link, just like, you know, as it should be because it's a CalDAV service. But uh, but it said, nope, don't know what that means. So, yeah, yeah, I was able to go to my old machine. And even though it couldn't connect to the calendar, it still had the data. So I was able to go to that calendar and export it and import it manually. So it's not dynamic because we're not sharing it, but at right. least the data is still there. So now so we'll have to move thing. it to the Google calendar uh, because that actually does work regardless of uh, whether we use mobile me or iCloud. Right. And actually I got to say during the iCloud migration, just to mention they do mention. So Absolutely. That there are ways through your address book, through iCal, um, through through all the programs that are impacted, they will tell you through the web pages. So, like, by the way, you may want to back up your data. Yeah. <laughs> so, back up your address book, back up your calendars. So there are ways to. Uh, but typically, you go to the file menu and say export, and yeah. you can export that data to disk because you know things could go kablooey. It, 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 I think for the most part, I've heard people have had pretty good experience, but some people have lost mail and yeah. <sighs> I, I right. want to make a clarification because you said something that that is true in a sense, um, 
you said mm-hmm. mobile me, your Apple ID and mobile or mobile me knows nothing about your Apple ID. Now uh, that is true for mail contacts, calendars and bookmarks. However, if right. you had a mobile me account, which you did uh, mobile, me will still work for gallery publishing. IWeb mm. and iDisc through yes. June 30th of 2012. So it's just, yeah. I just wanted and to they sure mention that. No, that's a good point. But they yeah. mentioned that during the process they said, okay, all these other things. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to pretend we don't know you, but, mm-hmm. but these other services. Yeah. Uh, you still have some time. Right. Right. So, all right. So uh, talking about losing data, uh, listener, John wrote, he said sometime after converting from mobile me to iCloud, my calendar came up blank. My calendar is on several devices and it remained in the cloud. So I was able to get my calendar back by deleting accounts on my iPad and then re-adding it, causing it or triggering it to pull that data, data back down. Others I support were not so lucky. One girl watched her calendar clear itself out before her eyes. It subsequently cleared out all her devices and the cloud. We don't know why, but that's not the question. The data still presumably exists in a time machine backup. Try as we might, though, we can't seem to restore iCal from time machine. Do you have any idea what the procedure might be? Uh, Here's what we've tried so far. So as not to lose anything, I created a new user on the computer, hoping to restore the calendar files there while offline to avoid server influence and then export the data. John, as you mentioned, uh, both for safekeeping and to then re-import the data into an active functioning calendar. I use Time Machine to restore to a different location the calendars folder inside the library. So home library calendars is the folder he restored from Time Machine. Then the iCal folder inside home library application support. And then any iCal related preference files. I moved those through the shared user folder to the new user and put them in place just before opening iCal. Some kind of permissions issue caused the launch to fail, as did all attempts to adjust preferences so far. So I feel like I'm going about it all wrong. What would you say is the procedure to restore iCal calendars from Time Machine? You want to start with this one, John? I'm going to start with my suggestion. So, you know, everything that he said sounds right. And that it sounds like it's all the places that iCal would put the data. The only thing uh, he didn't specifically mention, but but I'll mention here is that, so yes, so so the iCal preferences, most of them are in your home directory library preferences. And they'll have, of course, the word iCal in them. Um, there is, for a lot of applications, they also store preferences in a home directory library preferences by host directory. And I did find about four that seemed to be tied to specific calendars and that they had this big, long... <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome back. I should get some water. Yeah. Yes. Um, or should I hit the mute button there? Anyways, by host folder. You'll sometimes see some additional preferences in there. So he may want to, if he didn't look there already, now if he searched for, you know, as we mentioned in the past, if he searched for uh, iCal and search for system files, then they should all come up. But that's the only additional suggestion I had. Other than that, you may have to just figure that you're not, you're missing something. All the guesses were good as far as where all the data is located, but but you're missing that one file. So although it sounds wasteful, you may want to do a full restore of your entire drive. Ah, yeah, I, I know. But, no, but you know, I this think- is what it, this is what I would do if because I mean, you, you could. You could keep trying. 
to um, I have an idea to find to find the preference files that'll make iCal happy. But at some point, I'd give up and say, you know what, I'm just going to do a full restore of the entire hard drive for whatever date in the past. Bring up Time Machine, restore the full drive. I don't know. It, to me, it's just that you could keep trying and never never figure it out. I've what, done what do I've think? done this before. Um, and I think the problem is this whole tour through a second user in the shared user account and the permissions thing, because what I've done in the past has been to restore only the contents of home library calendars, leave the preferences the way they were. Uh, everything else doesn't matter. Uh, in my experience, you just, all you need is the contents of that calendars folder. That's what mobile me is going to look at. Uh, so quit mobile me. And I would restore right, you know, you said you created a new user account, restore right into that account. Don't bother trying to muck with moving it then from, you know, restoring it to one account and then moving it to another. I, I think that's what, what caused you problems. And, and you're probably still fighting a permissions issue. Uh, repairing permissions, as we've talked about, doesn't really fix user level stuff. It fixes system level stuff. I know you, you may have done more than that uh, here, uh, John, but, uh, but in, in, in essence, just restore, let time machine restore it directly to the user account that you're in, even if that means creating a new one. And, and I think you're going to be fine. I think you're going to launch iCal and you're going to see all this stuff. And then of course, you know what to do. You knew to go to file and export and get that stuff out of there in a much more transportable format. But those folders inside I in, inside home library calendars are funny named folders. They, they do not have names that correspond to, uh, their their English names or or whatever language you're using, they have numbers mm. and dashes and and they're you know very uh, convoluted. So I, I think I think that was your issue. So I'm hoping that was your issue and and that can uh, that can straighten it out for you. All right, our first sponsor for this show is Gazelle at Gazelle.com. We've been talking about them a lot lately, and for good reason. This is a good time to be thinking about Gazelle, especially if you have upgraded an electronic device recently and you have uh, an older electronic device that you have decided you want to part with and perhaps trade it for something more useful to you, like cash. Uh, You can do that at Gazelle.com. So uh, all you do is you take your your device and you just hold it up to the screen and magically cash comes out. No, no, that's not how it works. Uh, But it's almost like that. Uh, Instead of holding the device up to the screen, you just go to gazelle.com and you type in what the name of it is. And it'll tell you, it'll ask you some questions, say, you know, does it work? Did you, you know, submerge it in water? Are you trying to pull the wool over our eyes, essentially? Uh, No, you say it still works fine. And then they tell you, okay, well, uh, here's what it's worth. And, you know, you get a couple hundred bucks. And uh, for, you know, for an iPhone, they'll give you, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a used one in a lot of cases. And uh, and then they'll ship you a box and you put the phone in the box and you send it back to them and they check it out and make sure that you didn't submerge it in water. You didn't bash it with a hammer. And then they send you your check or they send you PayPal. Or if you do it via Amazon, I think they give you a 5% bonus. So check it out. Gazelle.com. Not just iPhones either. You can send your old MacBooks here. You can send your old Kindles here, your other cell phones. Uh, it's a great way to kind of just turn all that clutter. If you've got a pile of old cell phones uh, that you just can't bring yourself to part with because you know they're worth something, but yet you haven't parted with them because uh, but they're still collecting dust, well, gazelle.com. Check it out, gazelle.com. Time to move on to uh, to Mike here, John. How are we doing on time? 
40 minutes. Huh? 40. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, let's go to, let's go to yeah, Mike Mike's got, yeah. got a good one. Yeah. It gets a little geeky, but. Or a bad uh, one, but. Uh, that's, that's how we roll here. I'm still trying to find Mike. What's it? Which one I is it? Him. Fans? Is this the one? Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Mike writes. I'm the proud owner of a 2006 MacBook Pro running a two gigahertz processor. Other than having to replace a couple hard drives in it, it's been running beautifully. That is up until a couple months ago. I first noticed the problem when I fell asleep on Skype and awoke to my laptop being frozen. No mouse movements or anything. And the entire left side of it was incredibly hot to the point where I could only put my hand on it for a couple seconds. It began running. A, I began running a small desk fan next to it, blowing on it, hoping it would help. Sometimes it did. Sometimes it didn't. It wasn't until I happened to peek at my fan speeds using the iStat Nano widget and that I discovered the problem, or so I thought. The left fan wasn't running at all, and the right one was going at about 2,000 RPM. I reduced my usage of it until last weekend when I got a replacement left fan for my fix-it. And as I said, I thought this would solve the problem. Now I'm sitting here typing this as fast as I possibly can as I feel the laptop heating up under my fingertips. The problem, as mentioned, is that the laptop heats up quite a lot still. And has been freezing again. The only solution I've found is that when it freezes, I force it to shut down by holding the power button, leaving it off until it cools off and then powering it back on. As you both can probably tell, this isn't a very convenient way to be using it. Uh, Any advice either of you can give would be very greatly appreciated. I've also sent in a screenshot, which John, of course, conveniently neglected to include in our beautiful email trail. But I saw the screenshot and both fans were running at a thousand RPM. So the right mm. fan, the left fan is now running, uh, which is better than before, but the right fan is running at half the speed that it previously was. Uh, any advice for Mike, John, let's start with you. I'm not sure what the problem is. Cause he's mentioning heating up and then freezing. And shouldn't that kind of, no, that was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> so the problem I, I'm going to, here is my suspicion. So number one, the problem was that one of his fans wasn't running, right? So it was overheating, and normally, I mean, if the thing gets too hot, it should shut down, but I guess in some cases, yeah, it'll it'll lock up. Yep. Um, I've never personally seen a machine shut down due to heat, so maybe that's the other way it deals with it, or at least this vintage machine. Yeah, yeah. However, looking at his fan speeds, they seem to be low, because based on what I know, most MacBook Pros run the fans at, at at least 2,000 RPMs. I would agree with that. Certainly. So 1000 seems slow. So I'm wondering, so maybe that's normal for this vintage machine. It's a 2006. It's not. I, I had oh, one of those. All right. Well, I in think, that case, I think you had I, one too. I think, I, and you're right. I think they both would run at about 2000 RPM. Right. That's what's happening on my 2008 machine is right. 2000 is normal. And I think it is for most machines. So what I'm suspecting is I think one of the temperature sensors may not be working now. This begs the question, is there any way for you to change the behavior of the fans in the machine? Thankfully, and I got not there one, is. And I got not one, but two answers. So one is a product that he's already familiar with. Well, it's a different version of the product. So he's using, uh, is it iStat Nano, he said? That's correct. Which is a, a widget. Right. Now, they also have something which you and I both use, Dave. And, and I didn't know this for a while, but you, you, you got me up to speed on this. But iStat Menus which isn't terribly expensive. I forgot, was it like 17 or 18 bucks or something like that? But it's pretty reasonably priced. And um, it does have a mode where you can set up fan or profiles for cooling. 
So one thing I would suggest is that he sets up a profile that spins the fans a little quicker. And I think what he'll see is that the temperatures will go down. And if they go down, then I think he'll avoid this nasty freezing or locking up behavior. The other program that also does this is something called SMC fan control. So um, I think fixing the core problem here, which is a defective temperature sensor, would probably not be a good uh, use of money. I think this is going to hold you over until you can maybe get a new machine. Yeah. Like the only way around this, the only way to, to definitely solve the problem, I think, uh, in my opinion, would be to replace the motherboard. Yeah, unfortunately, that's right. I think that's the, the everything everything related to this other than the fan itself, I think, is soldered to the motherboard or, or part of the motherboard. So, yeah, that sensor. But I think you can I think this will work for you because it seems like uh, based on, you know, this this email story here, it seems like as we increase the amount of cooling, the machine gets more reliable, you know aiming a fan at it works, but it's not the most effective way of cooling it because it's not doing it in the way that it was designed. But I, I think if you crank those fans up, uh, I think you'd be all right. That would be my guess. The only thing you're going to have to remember is as John said, your sensor is bad. So if your machine, you know, normally the machine has a baseline of, of I, I believe 2000 RPM on both fans. But if you're running both processors at full tilt and it's 90 degrees in the room, or both cores rather at full tilt and it's 90 degrees in the room, uh, you're going to want those fans running faster. Not, you don't have to run them at 6,000 RPM, but you know, maybe 3000 and iStat menus will allow you to do that. You can set up profiles in it and you could set one for 2000 and one for 3000, one for 4,000 and just measure. And, and actually, uh, you know, you can see what the sensor reports or see which sensor is bad. So there you go. The only other suggestion I would have is just to make sure that you have it in a nice, uh, nice environment in that you have it elevated. Mm. Uh, Make sure it's not uh, against an insulator. So it's not on a blanket or a pillow or, you know, even a tablecloth. Though that's probably not as bad. Right. right. But as you can see, as, as you can already detect here, depending on the design of the machine, the case, the metal case radiates heat and it helps cool the machine off. So if you're somehow blocking that, so make sure there's no blockage. Uh, it, it, it sounds redundant, but, but you know, I'm going to, and also like I have something called the, uh, I'm trying to remember. I, I think it's the eye riser. Yeah. Yeah. There's a Maddie. Okay. Things. No, what I have is something called uh, Yeah. So it's from Maddie M A T I A S and it's called Matthias. Yep. And it's called an eye riser and it is a stand that will elevate, uh, pretty much any portable computer, uh, macro pro or otherwise and i use this because i don't want it sitting flat on on a surface uh, the other thing i use is uh, that that they also have uh, and i have it in another room is uh it's one of these pads that has a special oh gosh do you know what do you know uh, it's got uh, some special material in it is it thermopack is that the name of it sure mm-hmm. Maybe that's it, but it's a pad that has a special material in it where even though you're placing it flat on it, the material inside of the pad. So one, it's kind of ridged, but number two, the material inside of the pad is made to help dissipate heat. So yeah, so don't put the thing flat on a, a surface if you can avoid it. Either either get a riser or or some some product that's meant to dissipate the heat, and we'll link to it, of course, in the show notes. But uh, yeah, but 2006, hey, more power to you. I mean, that's a... Uh, that's five years old. That's a, that's a pretty good run. It, it is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, still going. I was going to say still going strong, but that would have been an overstatement. And kudos that you replaced the fan. You know, the thing is, every now and then I'll hear one of the fans of my MacBook Pro, I'll hear a noise. Ooh. Like one of the bearings is starting to go in one of the fans. I still see them. You know, I'll, I'll use high set menus and I still see them running at at least 2000. But I know at one point, I think one of the fans is going to is going to die. It sounds like it's 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 getting cranky. Well, so. it's it stands to reason, right? I mean, these are are moving parts. So by, by definition, they mm. will they will die. It's uh, it's just a matter of, you know, well, when <laughs> so. All right. Uh, one last question. Let's uh, let's go to Michael. This is uh, this was an interesting one when it came in. And uh, and it's a case of of taking something that in the end is actually quite simple and and misunderstanding the direction and, and unfortunately spending a lot of time with with not a lot of great results. So hopefully we can not only help Michael out here, but but help a lot of you uh, before you have any trouble. And so we will share Michael's story and our our thoughts. Michael writes. As part of my Lego robots project connected to my MacBook Pro, I was asked to open port 2055 on my airport extreme so that another school could send some data. But port 2055 needed to be open. Sure, open a port. How difficult can that be? I thought, well, after a week, I have concluded that it's not as easy as I thought. I've tried to open port 2055 in airport utility. I tried a utility called Waterroof, which I think checks incoming net data like NetStat in Apple's network utility. And I tried a terminal command using all sorts of crazy things to see if the port is actually open when the other school sends data. The other school has a tool called Socket Listener for Windows, which can listen for data on specific ports. But I, of course, only have Mac, so I don't know if port 2055 is open on my extreme or if data is coming in. But as I do not know how to listen for incoming data on my extreme, I've spent hours, had no luck with Apple discussion forums or on Mac OS X hints or anywhere else. How hard is it to open a port and number two, check or listen for incoming data to that port? John, I'm sure you and I are going to bounce this one back and forth, but uh, but go ahead and and uh, and and start. Why don't you? Well, I'm going to start here because there are two aspects to opening a port. So one is if you're running a program that expects data on a certain port, then by default that program already opens the port. The problem is on you have computer. equipment, right? Correct. But the thing is, there's something between your computer and the internet, and that's your airport. So the thing is, you're going to have to do a couple things. So you want to run the airport utility, and I'll tell you where to go exactly. So you run the airport utility, and you go to Internet, NAT, Configure Port Mappings. So this is a, the, the, so I can understand the confusion because the thing is, the wording is different here. It doesn't say open port. It says configure port mappings. That's clearly different wording. But this is what you want to do. You want to configure port mappings because the thing is, above a certain number... Uh, like a port like this 2000 port, normally your airport's going to block any traffic that comes from outside. It's going to say, no, what? Oh, I don't know. So what you got to open is. it manually. Right. And the thing is, so what you do is you go to configure port mappings and then you'll see a little plus sign. So what you want to do is click on that. And then you're going to get a screen that's going to ask for the port number for both UDP and TCP, both the public and private, uh, I think. So there are five entries. Four of the entries has to do with the port number. Center that port number. And then there's going to be a final entry, private IP address. This is the address of your, um, your computer. 
And I'm going to interrupt here for one second for those first four entries, unless you have specific instructions or understand a reason to do otherwise, my Mm -hmm. advice is put the same number in for all four of those. And so that would be in this case, 2055. Sorry to interrupt, John. I just wanted to get that out there. No, 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 that's good. Um, A little sideline is that I looked this up and I did look, uh, uh, what is the name of the site? Portmap.com or portmap.net. Yep. And they hinted when I looked at the Lego software, they suggested that it doesn't, it uses not only 2055, but some others. So I would double check that to see if that's the only port that you need. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so step one, you want to go in the airport, configure port mappings, enter 2055 and make sure you get the IP address of your machine in there. Step two, it's possible. So then you got another layer here, though. Say on your Mac, your firewall is on. Well, how do you know if it's on? Well, you're going to go to system preferences, security and privacy, firewall, and there's going to be a button. And it's either going to say start or stop. So if it's running, you may want to stop it. I don't know if I do that, though. You and I tossed this around before, Dave. I have the firewall on just to be paranoid. Sure. You, I think because you trust the equipment in front of your firewall, you typically have it off. Well, in theory, that's your choice to, you know, expose yourself to the world. That's right. I love exposing myself to the world. (laughs) Uh, But but here's the, here's the thing. The way the Mac OS 10 firewall works, if the firewall's on, when you, you mentioned when you launch a program and it wants to listen on a port, that port is by definition open. Well, the way the Mac OS 10 firewall works, and many of you have probably seen this if you've turned it on, is when a program wants to accept data from the Internet, the firewall jumps up and says, hey, uh, this Lego software wants to accept data from the Internet. Now, it doesn't bore you with the details of port 2055 and all this other happy haha. It just says, do you want to allow it to accept data or not? And so in theory, at that point, you've you you've already seen that message and hopefully, you know, agreed to let it through. Now, here's the way I test this stuff, because once you put that port map in place with the airport router and you do the restart of the router, because that's the only way to get the the mapping in place, uh, you want to test it. So there's two things I do to test this. And I I do it in the terminal. There's probably other ways. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I use a command called Telnet, T-E-L-N-E-T. At a very basic level, what you do with the Telnet is you say, I want to connect to this computer on this port. Uh, And it's using TCP by default. I don't know if you can get Telnet these days to do UDP, uh, but hopefully we're talking TCP anyway. So the first thing you want to do is make sure that your computer is listening on that port. And the way you would do that is you say Telnet space, and then you put the IP address of your Mac uh, itself in and then another space and then two zero five five uh, because we're talking about port two oh five five uh, in order to get your max IP address. This is going to be the same one that you put in for the fifth entry uh, in the airport router. There is another way to do it with a, a address of one two seven dot oh dot oh dot one or zero dot zero dot one rather that points to to always points to your local Mac. But uh, but in this case, I think it's better to put in the address that you put in in the router, because now you're kind of testing things in the way that they were uh, built or the way that you think it's going to work. And and what will happen is if you if you do that, so you say Telnet space IP address space port and hit enter. uh, In theory, it should say connected and it'll just sit there Uh, if it doesn't work. And then you can just close the terminal. 
Uh, or you can do the control bracket to close out of it and then type the word close because those instructions will come up on the screen. Uh, if it says could not connect, then you know that no matter what you do to your router, your Mac's still not answering on that port. So you got to figure out, you know, is the software configured right? Is the firewall giving you trouble? Right. You know, get that working first. Then once you've done that and you have the router set up now type in uh, the same command, telnet space, IP address space, and then the port 2055 in this case. But for the IP address, put your outside, the external IP address that the world sees. Now, this would be the address that you would give to the people at the other school. Um, and if you don't know it, the easiest way to find it is to visit some site out on the Internet that can tell you what your external IP is. And I like what is my IP dot com. Uh, so you put that in. And if that works, then it tells you that when you connect to your router, your router passes the data correctly or the request directly along to your computer. And then the computer answers. So that's how you test for it. Not not difficult, but uh, certainly a, a geeky thing that uh, not very geeky, but not mildly geeky either. You, you need to uh, you need to dig in a little bit. But but that's how you test it, because, you know, you asked. And so here we are. Happy to. Help. All right. A few other ways or a few other options here. So oh. also, if you want to eliminate the uh, firewall asking this question all the time, because it will. Unless you tell it, hey, by the way, you know, this piece of software. So what you can do is so where I mentioned before preferences, security and privacy firewall, there's an advanced button. And if you go there, you're going to see a list of programs. What you may want to do is if you're using this Lego software up and you may want to click on the plus sign, add the Lego software and then say, accept incoming connections, then you'll eliminate that annoyance. So it's annoying. It's not required, but it's just something you may want to do. Now, the other question. So, Dave, you certainly covered. Um, oh, and you're saying to me it'll happen automatically once you do it the first time. Oh, yes. isn't that great? OK, yeah, that list is auto populated when you say, OK, so puts it in that list. Yep. Oh, I just learned something. You know, that's why it's we're just here. So great. <laughs> ah, how do things get there? So, yeah, so you don't need to add it manually. Though if you'd like to, you could. Sure. Um, but now, how can you tell what ports are listening? Now, now you indicated a way, Dave, that is through the through the Telnet command, where you, where you put a, a port. The other way, a very general tool to do this, well, I'll mention two tools. So one is actually built into something called Network Utility, which not a lot of people really use too often. But Network Utility gives you an interface to something called NetStat. And that's a Unix command, though this presents it in a slightly nicer way. So what you can do is run network utility, say netstat, and then say display the state of all current socket connections. Once you have the software running, what you'll see is a whole list. And buried in there somewhere, you're going to see a lot of things that are in the state of listen. And that means, oh, this port is listening. And if port 2055 is in a listen state, then you know that your program is listening on that port. Yeah. Um, another program that I like to use to determine what ports are open on a computer, and uh, I believe there's actually a version of this compiled for the Mac, is something called Nmap, which is just a really spiffy tool. It, it's it it can be used for vulnerability testing, but you basically put it at a computer and you can say, "All right, show me all the ports that are open." And by the way, maybe you can tell me what because the way that a computer handles network traffic, this program can, with a certain degree of certainty, tell you what operating system it's running as well. So it's a good security tool because I use it every now and then. If I find a machine and I, I don't quite know who or what it is, 
it'll show you not only all the open ports on it, but it'll try to identify the operating system that it's running. Cool. Have you used that Nmap or? Uh, it, I, you know, I have. It's been a very long time. Um, okay, yeah. but that will give you a list of all the open ports that are that, that are listening as well. And that's probably a better way because Netstat is is kind of it's unruly. Yeah, it, uh, it's actually well, it much just spits easier. out everything. It's much easier from the command line where you can. And now we're going to get very geeky briefly, and then we're going to come back because we've got some great tips Ooh. to share before we get out. But yes. uh, but I I only use Netstat from the command line if I can also use it with grep. So I would do a Netstat pipe grep listen and and then it only shows me the lines listening that ports, are listening, right, right 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 so all right uh, uh a couple of tips uh and i don't know that we'll get through all of them but that's okay that's uh that's why we're gonna do a show again next week uh scott writes i have a tip that may help some people free up hard drive space i download dozens of podcasts daily i often interrupt the download of some of these if i determine from the information in itunes that i don't want that particular episode these partially downloaded podcasts are saved in the downloads folder in the itunes media folder which by default is in the music folder in your home directory and over time they can take up quite a bit of space i go in and i delete these every few days that's awesome, Scott. Thanks for uh, thanks for the reminder. And sure enough, I found some stuff out there that was actually a very old, years old. So that's good. Uh, okay, Tony uh, from uh, from Show Fifty Eight. Tony was the one that said he had found the empty, the secure empty trash shortcut. And of course, as we tried it, we stumbled and fell. no, that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Well, Tony followed up. Uh, he said uh, it turns out we were both right uh, and also wrong. About this shortcut, he says, I'm running Snow Leopard. I haven't made the transition to Lion yet, but if you customize your finder preferences and this does work in Lion, if you go into finder and go into you know the finder menu and choose preferences, uh, you can use the shortcut to empty secure trash, secure empty trash for all your data shredding needs. You do this by going to finder preferences, go to the advanced tab from there. Check the box that says empty trash securely. When you do this, the previous shortcut to the standard empty trash now becomes secure empty trash. Uh, It uses the same shortcut keys. Of course, you'll still get the warning prompt before deleting unless you also uncheck the box in that same advanced section of the pane that says show warning before emptying the trash. Uh, If you remove the warning dialogue, then you are living more dangerously than Tony. Uh, so thanks, Tony. That's uh, I appreciate the update on that. I I knew you wouldn't have sent that if it if you hadn't actually done it. So that's why, uh, frankly, that's why I didn't test it before we did it in the show last time. But uh, but that's how uh, that's how we go here. Um. Hmm. All right. Let's. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know what? Let's uh, let's do. Well, we got we got two more two more quick ones. One that's near and dear to my heart uh, and is actually going to be a surprise for our own Mr. John F. Braun. But first, Ben writes, uh, for those of you that haven't figured it out, the new IMAX headphone jack supports the controller on the headphones. So if you have headphones with shuttle controls, you know, play, pause, that sort of thing, uh, the the jack on the new IMAX will support it, which is actually pretty cool. As Ben says, it's a nice touch. And lastly, but folks, definitely, definitely. And John, not leastly, mm-hmm. an app came out. So on uh, last week, there was a lot of stuff that happened, right? I mean, we got 10.7.2. We got iPhoto 9.2. We got iOS. Aperture. We got iOS 5. We got Aperture. We got a lot of stuff. But something came out that is near and dear to this show more than anything else. And that is 
airport utility for iOS. Now, Got it. everyone that's out there that has asked, how can I configure my airport router without first having a, a Mac? Well, previously it was impossible and now it is totally doable and it works just great. So, uh, so check it out. It's free. It's from Apple. There's no, you know, uh, no voodoo going on with third parties or anything. Uh, I believe you need iOS five to use this app. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but there you go. So the airport utility is its name. You can find it in the app store and, uh, and man, I was so happy. You know, I think frankly, it's better I, than the Mac version. In some ways you I bring it right. up, you yeah. bring it up and it immediately shows you a yeah. network diagram. It yeah. shows you. Yeah, that's you, right. Your, yeah. I mean, it shows that you click on something because the assumption is that you're already logged into. Well, no, the assumption may not be that, but at least my device, when I'm home, I'm automatically logged into my time capsule anyway. So, it's, right. so right now when I click on it, it shows me internet with a little globe. Yeah. And uh, I got to be careful here because I don't want to screw anything up on the internet. That's the only thing that makes me nervous about this is that it puts the internet at my command. Yes. Don't break right. the internet, John. Don't, yeah, please don't break the internet, John. <laughs> so it shows your external IP address, your DNS servers, which is cool. And then if you click on your device, and I think you had a minor issue, Dave, but I think you fixed it. And then at one point you said it wasn't showing all your your airport devices. Or yeah, did, did so you get around I, that? I thought that it was only showing airport devices to which you were wirelessly connected. Uh, but as it turns out, that's not true. It will show any airport devices on your network. My problem was that there was something wrong with my time capsule and it needed to be rebooted. And that actually solved a problem that I was having with my iMac in the house that had been going on for several days. Uh, I didn't realize that it was related to some funkiness with the time capsule, but, uh, but yeah, now it's, it's, uh, it's great. And I was so happy to see it. You know, we'd seen the rumors of it, but, uh, but it was nice when it finally, uh, finally made the transition from rumor to existence. Even as iOS four users in the cold, <laughs> you can update Pete. They, they're, they're welcoming you, you know, it's open know. arms as sort of as soon as I might or might not unjailbreak. I'll... <laughs> oh, by updating to iOS five, you yeah. will almost certainly unjailbreak. <laughs> I was guessing that. <laughs> For now. You can do yeah. a tethered jailbreak with iOS 5. Can you? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, on an iPhone 4. I don't believe a jailbreak for the 4S is out yet, um, but uh, but they say that it's coming, and they also say the untethered jailbreak for iOS 5 is coming. Uh, they say they've already found the loopholes there, so that's good. I will, I will likely do that on my phone once I am able. All right. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address to which you can write and ask us your own questions or share your own tips with us or really comment on anything that we do here. Did I hear you right, Dave? I thought I heard you say feedback at MacGeekGab.com. No, man. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> Just making sure, man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can send us audio comments to that address. You can send us text email anything you can email we, we'll screenshots which yeah. i will uh dutifully not include in the emails to dave well <laughs> that's you. mail you know and that's mail app i blame mail app for not doing that come on man hey, listen you know all you gotta do is drag it in it's easy but still if i forward a message with the with no you're the, not forwarding it's it's when you reply it i'm sorry when i reply it. all right but i see this uh, maybe there's a setting we don't know about somewhere yeah, it just seems to me lame it. It just seems to me lame that when I do a reply to both the person that poses the question and to feedback at MacGeekGab.com or premium 
at MacGeekApp.com that it doesn't include the picture. It includes the name of the picture file. Yeah. To me, that's incorrect behavior. Uh, I, I wish they'd fix that because, yeah, I, I don't mean to make your life difficult. I know. And you've I, done it once or twice to me. But. I like to do it to you. It's intentional, actually. <laughs> I know. For you. <laughs> actually, it's not. 206-666-GEEK is the phone number you can call if you want to just call and leave a message for us. You know what that is, Dave? I don't know what it is. What is GEEK, John? It is 4335. Outstanding. I wonder if I told Siri to call 206-666-GEEK, what would happen? You know what? It's time, John. We're oh going to do gosh. a live in-show Whoa. Uh, thing here. So I think I'm going to have to. Uh, I'm going to have to bring the band down. So what happens if I do this? So we bring it up. Call two zero six 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 Geek. No, it said two zero six 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 six, and it didn't even put the. It said green. So. So much for Siri on iOS 5 with the iPhone 4S. She's no how. Call them yourself. You know know what's weird, though, is it knows my first name. So having an electronic device refer to me as Dave is is pretty scary. Now, if if it sings Daisy to me, I'm throwing the thing out. (laughs) Before it throws you out. You got it. That's right. Uh, You can Skype us to MacGeekGab, of course. And uh, and you can find us on Twitter. John, where are they going to find us on Twitter? We're all over the place. It's a mess. But if you want to find me, it's John F. Braun. If you want to find Dave, it's Dave Hamilton. If you want to find Pilot Pete, it's Pilot Pete. The podcast is MacGeekGab, where you will find uh, when the show is released and when the show notes, show notes are updated. And if you want to, if your question can be represented in 140 characters, you can send a Twitter question. Uh to MacGeekGab on Twitter, and of course Mac Observer, which uh, there are all sorts of wonderful Mac news. Uh, but the other place you can find us, Dave, uh, and we're steadily growing a community there, is Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. Outstanding. Alright, we would like to send out thanks to, uh, well, several parties and companies here. So first, Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this to AAC enhanced for you and for us. Cashfly provides all the bandwidth for you and for us, well, at least in terms of how this show gets to you. Uh, the podcast marketplace includes a lot of people we want to thank. It includes Audio Engine, makers of the great A2 and A5 desktop speakers, Barebone Software, makers of BB Edit, Smile, uh, makers of Text Expander and PDF Pen, Gazelle, of course, and uh, and lastly, I think I'm going to, I'm definitely going to be at Blog World Expo. I'm speaking there on uh, Friday the. 4th, I think, of November, and I'm also going to head out to L.A. a little bit early uh, before Blog World Expo and visit the Mac Tech Conference there. So <sighs> really looking forward to that uh, and checking both of those out. And of course, I'll report back on both of them. So this should should be a, should be a fun trip now. And uh, if you want to go to Blog World Expo, you can get 20% off registration by using the code ObserverVIP. And folks, that's it. I think that's it. You got anything else, John, before we push this one out of here? No. Off we go. Thanks a lot, everybody. Stay subscribed. Don't get caught.
Thank you.